Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. We are off this week working on reporting on some amazing news stories, so we're bringing you some of our favorite podcast pieces from recent months in this special Rewind episode. Our first piece today is on the rise of mobile businesses in Reno. After that, we have a piece about the first female Paiute fly fishing guide. At the end of the show, we have a piece on 16-year-old Samantha Glover helping get a bill passed in the legislature tackling the issue of period poverty. With rent and real estate prices rising, you may be seeing more mobile businesses around town. That's a business that's on wheels, that brings services or products to the customer instead of the customer coming to them. I talked to two mobile business owners in Reno recently to hear about the perks and challenges that came with the territory. The first was Golden Owl Bookshop. My name is Alex McClelland. I was a stay-at-home mom before my son came up with this idea. So he was nine at the time, and I had read a story in class about a kid in London who turned a double-decker bus into a bookstore. And so he came in. He was like, do we have anything like that here? I said, no. (laughs) And then he was like, can we start that? I was like, sure, why not? Let's do it. I was really kind of nervous when he had the idea because I just thought, Everyone does e-readers now, or everything's so digital that I'm like, no one's going to want to buy a bunch of books, but we'll give it a shot. And it's been, it's actually been like a huge, like hugely pleasant surprise because people want physical books. They don't want to be reading on a screen all the time. I've only had a couple days where it really wasn't worth my time to be out there. You're going to have that in retail no matter what branch you're in. I try to make sure that we knock out a good amount of time within the day that we all just read because it's really important and it's a huge priority and I want it to be something that my kids enjoy and they do they all absolutely love sitting down and reading books as an avid reader I also wanted to know what some of the best sellers were for a bookshop on the go best sellers would be business books I sell a lot of business books or like self-improvement books and then just general adult fiction. That was one thing like when we were talking about opening it and I was talking to other mobile bookstores like along the East Coast and stuff. And they're like, you know, you would be really best off if you just stocked fully kids books. And so as a mom, <laughs> like going to like book fairs with my kids, I was like, like I get it, but at the same time, I also want to have books for adults too. I wanted to have books for for me, for moms, for dads, for you know everything. And honestly, I sell more adult books than I do children's books. Another recent addition to Reno's community is Emmy's Flower Truck. It's a roving flower shop owned by Emily McPherson, a retired flight attendant. And I have always liked old cars. It's just something that my husband and I love. And so I thought, well, I'm just going to get, I'm just going to buy an old car. And because he had, he always buys them, and I thought, I want one. So anyway, I, I decided, and I love Volkswagens, and I found this car, and with the intention of having flowers in it, because I had seen that many places before, and I've, I've always been a gardener, and, and I've always grown flowers, so I thought that'd be perfect. We just had to add the rack that holds the flowers. I asked both Alex and Emily what the biggest advantage of being on wheels was. We were contemplating moving, and so not having a brick and mortar made it easier for us. Like, we can take this with us. And then the other part of it, too, was we have family that's, like, out in Fernley. 
and they order everything on Amazon because they don't have a bookstore there. And so it's like, okay, being mobile, I can go to those different communities because Washoe County is so big. I can go to those different communities and sell books there. They're usually like dumbfounded and amazed and just super excited. And that's what I get a lot. They're like, oh, it's like the Scholastic Book Fair, but on wheels and for adults. Like, this is awesome. I mean, obviously, like I'm not having to pay like a power bill or a water bill or anything like that. Like we just have batteries that charge off the solar panels. So the upstart was pretty expensive. Yeah. We briefly looked into possibly having a brick and mortar as well as the book truck, but real estate right now is insane. It is unique because you have to be invited. Wherever we go, we're invited by the owner of the store that we're at. And so you get to meet many different people where you wouldn't be able to in a brick and mortar. So, you know, because this, we, we can roam anywhere that we're invited and we meet all kinds of new people, get to know the community. I've just never felt the hometown feel like I do now and how hard everybody works and especially the small business people. It's been very simple for us. We just, we know what, what we want to buy. We have a great wholesale flower company and, and we just, we know how many buckets to fill. And I think it was, it, it was hard to figure out pricing was, was kind of difficult because seasonally the prices change. While food trucks and ice cream trucks have been around for ages, Sometimes, government regulations haven't kept pace with the innovation in the mobile business world. I talked with the city of Reno's business relations program manager, Lance Ferrato, about this. Let's say you wanted to do like a mobile detailing shop or something like that. There's certain inspections that would apply to them from environmental control. If you're doing like any sort of any sort of off of the norm general business that would require a planning, like mobile food vending requires a fire inspection, right? Whereas like a flower truck wouldn't require a fire inspection. A lot of the laws that they have in place pertain to food trucks specifically, not mobile businesses. So it's been kind of tricky trying to like figure out what I'm allowed to do and what I'm not allowed to do because I'm not a food truck. But I do have a business run out of my truck. So they had never heard of a flower truck. It wasn't a normal thing that they licensed for. So we had to explain a lot and first there was you had to make sure that you had all the appropriate you know everything in the truck that had to be there and then it took a little while to get it approved also probably because it was the pandemic so we it was hard though because they had not they didn't know where, where to put us because they weren't sure if we were a street vendor basically you cannot park on city streets you have to park on private property you can't even park on public property and like in a park at this point we're working with parks and rec and and you know other divisions in the city to try and make that a more of a, a realistic thing because we want people to have food trucks like at birthday parties and things like that in the park. But as a code stands right now, it's not allowed. So basically you have to have permission from a, a property owner to park your truck somewhere uh, because they're not allowed on city streets. You can't just park, pull up and park on the meter or park on the curb. So yeah, that, those are, those, there's definitely restrictions. And we try to treat the, the mobile businesses all the same, even though like a flower truck say may not fall under the mobile food uh, trucks in the same code. Our code needs some adjustment because of the evolution of this business. There's there's these new questions that pop up and say, well, how should they be treated? And we want consistency. So that's something we're looking at. And there are other challenges that come from being mobile as well. 
other businesses inviting me to to be in their vicinity, but yet not marking spaces off for me. So then I'm like, cool, where am I supposed to park? I don't know. Or they'll leave me one parking spot, and I'm like, oh, but my truck is so big. Like, I cannot fit in just one parking spot. Because not a lot of people have had a mobile book truck, was figuring out how to keep the books from falling off the shelves when I'm driving. So we bungee cord. But like here, there's a gap. So I have to find other things to shove in that gap because even that small amount of space, the books will shift and then they'll come under the bungees. So yeah, it's like playing Tetris <laughs> sometimes, trying to figure out what fits. The cookbooks are heavy. And so I've had the cookbooks fall and like, because they're so heavy and they just are, they're coming from the very top shelf, Damage. like total covers just ripped off. And I'm like, Awesome, that was a $50 book, Yeah, <laughs> you know? So that kind of stinks. Another tricky part is figuring out where people are gonna wanna be buying books. We do the Riverside Farmer's Market. That's probably our, our best days. It took us a while to figure out how to keep it cool in the summer. I ended up getting heat stroke one day. There was no air circulation. We ended up putting solar panels on the top so that way we could run this cooler. But Lance Ferrato said he's looking forward to seeing the model evolve. Personally, not not in my capacity to see. I think it's a I think it's a cool thing, and and I and I do think that it's beneficial in, in many ways, right? You can take the business out of your storefront, you can move it around, and you can meet the needs of your business by going to special events or spreading the the word of your business around town. Maybe people in South Reno don't know about all the businesses in North Reno, and I, I think it's great. It'll be exciting to see over the next few years on how people adapt to this and you know how how we move forward. You can find Golden Owl Bookshop and Emmy's flower truck roaming around the streets of Reno. If you want to read the full story, you can find that on our website, thenevadaindependent.com, along with a wonderful video from our video producer, Tim Leonard, who accompanied me to all of these interviews. Autumn Harry is the first Paiute woman fly fishing guide at Pyramid Lake. Reporter Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and video producer Tim Leonard visited the lake to talk to Autumn about fishing, guiding, and why her new role is so important to her roots. We met up with Autumn on a gusty January morning among the tufa rocks that line the shores of Pyramid Lake in northern Nevada. But new Autumn Harry Minari no Kiwi no Kiwi Takata, a guy Takata Deneno. My name is Autumn Harry and I'm a member of the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe. I am both Paiute and Navajo. As far as I know, I'm actually the first woman to guide here and have an official license and then even cooler, yeah, to be the first Paiute woman to, to be a fly fishing guide. Here in my homelands where I grew up is really exciting. Autumn says growing up on the reservation, fly fishing didn't seem like the most accessible sport until four years ago when a guide friend of hers introduced her. After that first lesson, I wanted more. It was something that was so new where it's like, okay, I want to get better at this and I want to learn how to do this on my own. It just takes one teacher to really get someone involved in fly fishing. You know, I want to be that same person who, who can share as much as I can and educate people who are visiting and who are recreating here um, on our homelands. 
Autumn's mom, Beverly Harry, worked for Pyramid Lakes Fisheries Department, responsible for operating the tribe's fishery restoration project. Her father, Norm Harry, was a key figure in decades-long negotiations over management of the lake and the Truckee River. I grew up fishing. My dad and my mom took me out at a really young age. Our people here are fisher people. You know, we're known as the Kuiwi Takata, which is the Kuiwi eater. The Kuiwi are such, you know, an important part of our culture and a big part of our identity as uh, Numu, as Paiute people. Those fish are really why our people are still here today. For me, when the lake closed down, like, it made me realize how... Even in my own homelands, I didn't always feel welcome in these spaces. But then I'm realizing that these are my homelands, I belong here, and I've accrued so much knowledge just within my lifetime of living here, and I have a lot to offer as a guide. When the pandemic started, a unique opportunity presented itself. Early, I think it was March 30th, the Pyramid Lake Paiute tribe had made the decision to shut the lake down um, in 2020. There was no competing with other fishermen for a spot. You know, everything was completely open. It was really peaceful. There were no boats on the water. It was just really like a beautiful time because there were so many natives that were fishing and that were out on the lake and we would bump into each other. And, you know, that's not always the case. At the same time, many tribal members were driving long distances just to find supermarkets with empty shelves. When I saw that those grocery stores uh, had limited food items, I started fishing and I just put a post on Facebook like asking if any elders or any families were in need of, of fish during that time to feed their families because food was really hard to access. I had a lot of elders who reached out And because, again, there was no competition with anyone, I was just able to catch a lot of fish. And I was also able to refine a lot of my my fly fishing skills as well and practice my casting and um, kind of develop that confidence in myself when it comes to fly fishing. So that was a really crucial time for our people. The way that our current food system operates, how we have to import goods from other countries or from other states, we saw that that's not always reliable and we can't always be dependent on that system for our food. We have to be able to to come to the lake and know how to fish to get our food. That's why I want to continue to, to teach more people. In November, Autumn submitted her application to become a licensed fly fishing guide, which required a background test, insurance, and CPR training. I was approved by the tribe in December of 2021, and so my fly fishing business is still uh, fairly new, but it's called Kuyui Pa Guides. And Kuyui Pa or Kuyui Pa Paninata is our Paiute name for the lake. When people say my guide business, I want them to be saying our Paiute name for the lake. And so hopefully people will begin to practice saying that name and it will become more commonly known so that when people are visiting here, they will refer to Pyramid Lake as Kuyui Papunanada. I I think that there's a lot that people are missing out on when they visit here and hire a non-native guide. And so that's what I really want to shift. I want 
people to come here and to be respectful of our tribal protocols and our regulations and our fish as well. To respect the fish is also to, to respect the people. Becoming a guide is not as simple as just knowing how to fish and getting a license. It's running a business too. Autumn had to front the cost of all of the gear that comes with fly fishing, a sport that has exploded in popularity over the last few years. I think as far as getting the business started, the cost of gear is expensive. Rods and reels and line and, you know, all of the necessary gear that is needed for people. And a big part of what I want to do is providing waders and boots because that gear wasn't always accessible to me for the longest time. You know, I think in any sport, like especially... Uh, like skiing or snowboarding, the cost of even rental equipment is really high, and sometimes that can be a barrier to people. So it's really important that I provide that for clients and for people who are just getting started. The startup cost is expensive, and that's something that I'm learning, but I know that it'll all pay off, and it's a really important investment for me. I've only been advertising on Instagram so far. Like, I have my Kuyui Paw Guides Instagram account. But I've already had a lot of people reach out and book trips. And what's, what's cool to me is that it's been a lot of women who have booked trips with me. So I'm sort of seeing women as like my primary clientele in the future, which is exciting. I hope that women feel safe with me, with my guiding business. And I think having uh, taking out other women also kind of provides like a safety net for me as well. Like with many outdoor sports, fly fishing has a conservation aspect. Many hunters and fishers are advocates for the wildlife they interact with and the land and waters that the wildlife inhabit. For Autumn, lessons learned while fly fishing can be best taught by the region's original inhabitants. Our indigenous peoples and our indigenous communities here, like our Paiute people are not people of the past. We're very much existing in present day. We're still advocating for the protection of our fish species and when people are visiting and are here to fish I, I guess I want it to be more than just fishing for them I want them to be taking action and to be taking these steps of, of developing that education I don't want non-natives to see Paiute people as people of the past because we're not If you'd like to learn more about Autumn and her guiding, you can read Jasmine's story and watch Tim's video on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. This story was reported by Jasmine Orozco-Rodriguez and Tim Leonard, written and produced by Tim Leonard, and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. Samantha Glover is a 16-year-old high school student who attends the Davidson Academy in Reno, Nevada. She was also down in Carson City to help pass AB 224, which would help provide menstruation products in school bathrooms free of charge in an effort to combat what is known as period poverty. Samantha also co-founded a nonprofit called Red Equity, which helps provide menstruation products and destigmatize talk about menstruation and period poverty. I'm joined today by Samantha as well as reporter Tabitha Mueller. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. And so I guess I just want to start with what, what is period poverty? What, what, is, what, what does that mean? 
So it's the inability to access menstrual products, menstrual hygiene facilities, or menstrual education. Like the one question that I had is like, when did you start thinking about period poverty? Like what got you started? Because I, I don't know many teenagers that might be thinking, huh, like where do I get my menstruation products and where do other? And then what drove you to kind of champion this issue? Yeah, so this started from uh, an assignment in English class, actually. Um, we were assigned an argumentative essay and we could write about any topic of our choice. So while I was doing research just about this, I happened to stumble upon a story about period poverty. And I was so shocked because as someone who didn't have to worry about where my next tampon was coming from, it never occurred to me that other people were struggling to attend school or really just go about their daily life because they can't afford menstrual products. So I was like, wow, who, there's got to be someone doing something about this in Reno. Like, is there like legislation that people are working on or something to combat this? And while I looked into other states and what they were doing to mitigate period poverty in schools, I found out that Virginia, New York, and loads of other states, really just only six, though. But at the time, it seemed like, wow, these people are, are doing something and taking legislative action. So I looked into Nevada, and I realized that the last legislation proposed or passed was eliminating the tampon tax a few years ago. So as a high school student in Nevada, I realized that it's quite inaccessible in schools to get period products if you need them. You have to ask your teacher to leave class and then go to the nurse's office. And oftentimes they're like, well, why are you going to the nurse's office, et cetera, et cetera. So it can be a very lengthy process, at least in my own experience, to, to obtain a menstrual product inside school. So I decided to start calling some legislators and lobbyists, just anybody's contact information I found on the Internet from previous sessions and emailing, calling and asking somebody to bring forward legislation to ensure schools provide menstrual products inside school bathrooms because almost everybody I talked to about this like topic of menstrual equity and period poverty they're like oh this seems like a no-brainer why they're just as important as toilet paper hand soap they should be provided in the same way in school bathrooms so eventually I got connected with Assemblywoman Duran who brought forward this bill and here we are now right so that's kind of like where this all bill all started and then when you started calling had mm -hmm. you looked at other states with similar legislation what did that legislation look like and how did it kind of inform mm -hmm. the, con the conversations you had with lobbyists and lawmakers so i was a little bit unaware of the legislative process in nevada which is something I've now learned I think everybody should be taught in school about how the legislature works within our own state in Nevada. So I wrote a bill, or how ideally I would like to have this bill introduced based off of a bill in Virginia that recently passed. So the idea was to require all schools to provide menstrual products at no cost in Nevada. And so that was just kind of the precedent. And there was there's really a lot of positive support from where it has been implemented. New York City's pilot program saw attendance increased by 2.4% after they implemented free menstrual products inside school bathrooms. So it was the the scale of the problem as well as the potential positive impacts that I think um, really led legislators to support this piece of legislation overwhelmingly because one in three women since the beginning of the pandemic started have struggled to afford menstrual products. And, and it was passed unanimously, right? Yes. Through both houses? Yes, through both houses and both committees. What was, what was that feeling like for you? It was 
obviously overly like overwhelming. I was so excited. I still get so excited talking about it because it's very kind of reassuring to see that other people care about something you're so passionate just as much as you do. I was also feeling very inspired and empowered that a piece of legislation that was really just like a dream or idea quite literally a few months ago or a few weeks ago passed out of a real committee in like the real legislature. So that was so, so exciting. I think it's so cool. I think the legislature to a lot of people seems like this really inaccessible mm-hmm. monument of, of, of government. And, and so for you to be able to get in there and to get a bill passed, to talk with a legislator and, and, and work with them, do you feel like it's still super inaccessible? Or what are the barriers to getting people to like participate in politics? So I do think that the legislature being virtual made it much more accessible for me along with other students who were testifying in support of this bill. And I thought what was kind of the most monumental feeling I felt was how big of a difference young people can really make in legislation because we had over 700 students in Nevada sign on, both teachers, parents sign a petition in support of this bill, along with like 23 students called in and testified during the committee hearings. And to see that our work and oftentimes a lot of these were students who had never testified before and to see them do like write such motivating and persuasive testimony and see the impact that it had on legislators to really change their mind about legislation is beyond inspiring. And I think I hope that this kind of experience is inspirational to other people, particularly young people who may seem see politics or advocacy as out of reach or for people who have a lot of experience because legislators listen. That's what I found out. Like they do work for us at the end of the day. We are their constituents regardless of age. One thing I was wondering about Mm -hmm. is you got this piece of legislation through. Do you think it's enough? I think this is really the first step in combating period poverty. And we just in Nevada, along with eliminating the tampon tax, still have a lot of work to go because when we look at places of incarceration or just people who are not of school age who can't access menstrual products, this is not a solution to period poverty in Nevada, but rather the first step in finding a more comprehensive solution. I think every bill represents kind of something, you know, someone's idea of a problem and whether it's bigger or smaller. Mm-hmm. But do you have ideas for future bills that you want to present? Yes. And I think when we look forwards towards inspiration, that means at least the next step, encouraging college campuses to provide menstrual products. And then moving from there, we can look towards federal legislation like Congresswoman Meng's Menstrual Equity for All Act that was just reintroduced and making sure, I guess, that menstrual equity is accessible to everybody and every single administrator. There, there is a lot of cynicism in politics. I mean, people say like no, nothing ever gets done or, or mm-hmm. policy is only you know presented or, or pushed through by special interest groups and politicians only do things to help their campaign and they don't really care about like the actual thing. Do you, do you share that cynicism or do you feel like coming out of this, there is kind of this like genuine like hope to better society? Mm-hmm. So I can only speak to my experience, but I was came out of this legislature and from the bill signing ceremony with just this rejuvenated sense of hope, but also, I guess, feeling more empowered and inspired than ever. Because, I mean, I'm at the end of the day, I'm still a teenager who just had an idea. And for this to turn into a law, I think signifies possibility, I guess. People were like, oh, are you sure you've thought this through or no? how to implement this. And 
I think a very good response to this is this legislation affects high school students and middle school students. And I don't think any legislator who is not a high school student will be more familiar with the experience of high school students today and how they experience period poverty than a high school student themselves. So, of course, I don't have the legislative experience, but I have the experience of being a young person around those who've experienced period poverty. Well, Samantha, I feel like we're going to be hearing a lot more from you in the future, hopefully. Uh, Keep up the good work, and and thanks so much for talking with us. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Samantha founded Red Equity, a nonprofit organization that hosts period product drives and assembles period packages for women struggling to attain products during their menstrual cycle. In Reno, they partner with the Reno Burrito Project. If you want to find out more about the organization, you can visit their website, redequity.com, or follow them on Instagram at redequity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. This show is produced and edited by me, Joey Lovato, with additional help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen. And you can donate to the Nevada Independent on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. We'll be back next week with more reporting from in and around the Silver State. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.